hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you love art. So I wanted to tell you about another podcast that I think you'll enjoy. It's called The Art of Crime, and it's a history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. The Art of Crime profiles artists who have worked throughout history and in a variety of media, from wig making to painting. Each season centers on a different theme. Season two is titled Assassins, and it covers artists linked to assassinations. Season one is called The Unusual Suspects, artists accused of being Jack the Ripper. It looks at six creators who have fallen under suspicion in the Whitechapel murders. The biggest name of the bunch is Lewis Carroll. Yes, that Lewis Carroll. The art of crime is perfect for people who make, study, and appreciate art. It cares about who these artists were and why their work mattered. If you want to learn a ton about how we as a society view crime and art, and have a great time in the process, be sure to follow The Art of Crime wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply click on the link in the show notes. All right. I'm looking at fairly uh, modest naked woman on a clam. Well, the, the center of the picture shows a young woman with very long hair strategically placed. Like alabaster skin, not a flaw on her, with long flowing red hair that is sort of wrapping around her. She is standing in the middle of a giant seashell. The shell reads as almost comically gigantic compared to the waves and the shoreline and the landscape. It's a contrapposto pose. Yes. Isn't there a song where, where Joan Baez describes herself as the girl on the half shell? I think it's from this painting. And then all of this scene is sort of in the water, but we are also right against the shoreline. There is what looks like an ocean behind her. I can hear the ripple of the sea in the background. You almost feel like you might be able to breathe in or smell salty sea air when you see this. The first thing I notice is the pastel colors. It's a warm image. The colors are this beautiful palette of pale blue and green and pink. There are light colored pink flowers cascading. Unclear where the flowers are coming from. The whole scene has lovely movement and there's a delicacy to everything. She doesn't really have much of a facial expression going on. She seems sad? No, happy. No, sad. Maybe slightly sad, maybe maybe slightly detached, peaceful. Maybe somewhat bored or not sure if she's wistful or even uh, even in a way she has like one of those like thousand yard stares. Unbothered by it all. Kind of trying to cover herself. Kind of doesn't care. I'm surprised by the current day standards, how modest this is when compared with, say, penthouse or... Penthouse! <laughs> she looks good. She knows it. To her right are two angels blowing wind. A uh, rude man spinning on her. He's blowing a breeze, wind, onto her. And I think I they're really breathing can't... her to shore. Creating the sensation of her hair moving like, like a Beyonce fan, right? 
the male angel is carrying this other angel who is sort of wrapped around his body. And his hanger-on seems to be uh, Kristen Stewart. And I'm not sure who the woman on the right-hand side is. Maybe that's her mother. Holding what looks like a giant blanket or shawl, some kind of covering to offer up to her. It's a, a generous image when you think about all those things that nature can provide. I don't know anything about this picture. Um, I mean, I know that it's Botticelli. This painting, it... I'm never entirely sure what to feel about it. And I'm not sure Botticelli wanted it to make sense. It's kind of just more of a, a phantasmagoria, I think. I mean, I, I like it, but I never know what, what it is that we're truly looking for, I suppose. I may not know art, but I also don't know this. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 65, Sandro Botticelli's The Birth of Venus, from 1485 to 86. So at the risk of sounding totally shallow, I have to be honest that my writing process is almost exclusively dependent on fame. I pick my artwork for the episode, and the first thing I do is think about how famous it is, meaning how much do people already know about it? Would they recognize it outside of a museum context? Or maybe only inside if it's on their bucket lists? Or is it just some weirdo piece of esoteric art that only art historians know about? Or is it something in between? And determining the correct level of fame helps dictate how much has already been written about it, and therefore how much work I then need to do to help explain it. Obviously, if it's not a super famous work of art, then I need to do more work. But maybe not as obvious is how much work it takes to tackle a super famous painting. Because trying to say something even remotely new about it is almost impossible. The Mona Lisa? Yeah, thanks, it's been done. But at least, if you're me, there are some pretty clear-cut things you have to hit on. The Italian Renaissance, the French Revolution, the smile, the theft. But then there are paintings that aren't as clear-cut. Maybe like the Mona Lisa, they are enormously spoof-worthily famous. But no one can really say why. No one can isolate some historical moment or celebrated commission or compelling set of circumstances that makes a painting the icon that it is. Maybe there aren't any. Maybe it's just beautiful enough to inspire the ages. From the painters of the high Italian Renaissance, to pop art, to Benito Mussolini, to Lady Gaga, to The Simpsons. Mama, what's the matter? Haven't you never seen a naked chick riding a clam before? I don't have enough ink, or I guess breath, to properly impart to you how famous the birth of Venus is. 
It's a six by nine foot tempera and gold canvas by Italian Renaissance master Sandro Botticelli, painted around 1485. It graces every mug and tea towel. It has been parodied high and low to the ends of the earth. But like, what's its deal? This is the part that never really gets addressed. The experts kind of breeze by it. I mean, it's gorgeous, it's famous, it's famous because it's gorgeous, and otherwise basically empty. Is there actually a there there that makes it worthy of its fame? Is it worth looking at for meaning at all? Or should we just give ourselves over to the iconic, transcendent beauty of a naked chick riding a clam? I, for one, choose to investigate. Let's find the there there. And we'll start by turning to some old standbys to help us out. So first up, our old friend Giorgio Vasari, the first Western art historian who lived just a generation after Botticelli. So you know the painter's work is fresh in his mind, and yet it's before Botticelli became 20th century famous. Okay, here we go. Sandro, Vasari writes, shows in his work, quote, that profundity of thought and sharpness of mind typical of people who constantly reason and reflect upon complex and elevated questions. Okay, well, poetic and no doubt true, but not very informative. We could move on to the more contemporary critics, like the New York Times critic John Kennedy, who in 1959 wrote the wonderfully of its time, The Intelligent Woman's Guide to Art, which I got off eBay at the suggestion of a listener. Thank you very much. It opens with a discussion of the birth of Venus, beautifully remarking that, quote, Botticelli painted into it his own character, gave to it the flavor of his own personality, expressed in it the personal feelings and responses that made him a great artist within or without the historical and philosophical context of his time, end quote. This is not helpful. But there does seem to be a running theme here, focusing more on what abstract ideas the painting contained than what's actually happening in it. And we could really overcomplicate things and dive into the hugely dense doctoral dissertation on the birth of Venus by the early 20th century German art historian Abby Vorberg, and into my own impenetrable grad school seminar papers about Vorberg. In short, you're welcome, Vorberg believed that the Renaissance was the precise moment that we first see the inklings of modern psychology in art, and that the rippling fabric and her flowing hair, quote, harness passionate ecstatic violence of a previous civilization. Okay, I won't go any further into this, except to point out that art history tends to take something beautiful and largely without substance and create that substance, which inherently creates substance. It gives the painting meaning because of everything that we, through the ages, have contributed to the conversation around it. It's just kind of cool. But by getting too close to the painting, I think we're getting too far from our mission. So I ask again, what is this painting about? Let's pull out my old textbooks, which will give us the bird's eye view bullet points for the undergrads that they're meant for. And even without checking the index, I know that this painting will be in this doorstopper. Okay, Marilyn Stockstead's Art History Volume 2. 
Quote, The birth of Venus has been interpreted as the birth of an idea of beauty and the Neoplatonic idea of divine love. The classical goddess of love and beauty, born of sea foam, floats ashore on a scallop shell, gracefully arranging her hands and hair to hide, or enhance, her sexuality. The circumstances of this commission are unknown. So a little bit more, but not hugely helpful. Gardner's art through the ages is a little less wishy-washy and a little more certain of the painting's origins, saying that the commission was for the Medici family and that Botticelli was inspired by a poem to paint it. Quote, the lightness and bodilessness of the winds seemed to move all the figures without effort. I kind of like that. Indeed, Botticelli's elegant and beautiful style seems to have ignored all the scientific knowledge experimental art had gained, perspective and anatomy, in favor of allegory. In other words, everything you thought you knew about the Italian Renaissance is not in this painting. So let's move on to Janssen's history of art, which also confirms the Medici Commission. I'm not really sure when art historians stopped being so sure about that and also talks about Neoplatonism again, and then describes Botticelli's bodies as, quote, drained of weight and muscular power, which is kind of a meaner way of saying, quote, lightness and bodilessness, and that, again, quote, they seem to deny the basic values of the founders of early Renaissance art, but without actually looking medieval. Okay. So to sum up, what have the textbooks given us? We have sources of information that contradict each other, as is often the case with textbooks that cram 3,000 years of history into 2,000 picture-filled pages. But at least we have some key terms and ideas. Allegory. Neoplatonic ideas of love. These seem like good places to start. So what is Neoplatonism? Well, to start, what is Platonism? And a disclaimer, I am not a philosopher, but I will do my best here. Platonism is basically a theory posed by the ancient Greek philosopher Plato that affirms the existence of abstract objects, abstract thought, internal consciousness, without necessarily some physical object or practical action attached. Put another way, abstract ideas simply exist, independent of the physical world, or even of the symbols used to represent them, like numbers. A seven would be a seven even if there was no seven. Get it? We assign the numerical symbol to articulate it, but it would still exist even if we didn't. You get it. And therefore, the meaning and purpose of life is to continually push yourself, and all human progress, towards attaining higher and higher forms of this abstract knowledge. Plato called this his theory of forms, arguing that the physical world is not as real or true as universal, abstract, unchangeable ideas. And it's no accident that his most famous student was Aristotle, who, as all the best students do, argued the exact opposite, that to live is to focus on the concrete particulars, the physicality of life, the realm of the present. You can just imagine what their dinner parties must have been like. And all of this can basically be summed up just by looking at the central figures in Raphael's School of Athens. Plato and Aristotle walking side by side, in conversation, holding big heavy books, with Plato pointing up to the sky and Aristotle gesturing towards the ground. 
That finger pointing up is Platonism in a nutshell. So Neoplatonism, like everything else in the Renaissance, is the rebirth of this ancient idea in more modern times, and significantly more Judeo-Christian, with a particular emphasis on the oneness of God. And Plato himself probably wouldn't have been a big fan of Neoplatonism, which was especially trendy in Florence amongst the Medicis, who even sponsored their own Neoplatonic academy. And what they focused on in particular was beauty. More specifically, that looking at physical beauty will inspire the viewer to contemplate spiritual or divine beauty. It's like if Plato and Aristotle had a philosophical baby. The more beautiful a tangible, physical, earthly object is, the more it inspires you to think about universal, abstract, higher-minded ideals. Does this sound like Christianity? And the way that almost all the art in the Renaissance functioned? Yes, indeed it does. That's not really an accident. And ironically, invoking Plato is what gives a painting like The Birth of Venus its quasi-religious feel. Even though it's referencing a Greco-Roman myth and goddess, and the central contrapposto figure of Venus is modeled on the modest stance of ancient Greek sculpture, namely Praxiteles' Nidian Aphrodite from the 2nd century BCE, it almost feels like the gods and goddesses of wind, Zephyr and Aura, are floating in like Christian angels. On the right, Hora, the personification of spring, floatily welcomes Venus ashore by offering a garment, in the same pose as St. John in numerous depictions of the baptism of Christ. And the thing is, given the fluidity of Neoplatonism, the interpretations of this painting really are limitless. But what they all share is Venus as a vessel, an ethereal portal to abstract, allegorical ideas, which explains what we saw at the top with those rhapsodic metaphysical critics. And maybe this is also why the accuracy of her anatomical form, the lightness and bodilessness drained of all weight and muscular power, just doesn't really matter that much. But we'll come back to that. In the meantime, if we're in the mood for limitless interpretations of a painting, then we have to bring in La Primavera, or Spring, which is basically the birth of Venus's sister canvas. The two were painted around the same time and are almost always mentioned in the same breath, or the same paragraph of text, and are usually displayed side by side. And you can certainly see the similarity between them a central figure of Venus surrounded by mythological figures in flowy, diaphanous drapery. Tilted heads, similar faces, blonde hair, a light touch, and very few bodies that actually look like they're obeying the laws of gravity. La Primavera, though, is basically inscrutable, a hodgepodge of classical and contemporary references under the larger umbrella of springtime, as was described by our friend Giorgio Vasari. But beyond that, let's look at the painting from right to left. We've got Chloris, the Greek goddess of spring, getting snatched by her lover Zephyr, the god of wind, whom he marries and transforms into a deity, who we then see next to her, 
Flora, the goddess of spring, dressed and holding court, next to the central figure of Venus, who is also dressed this time, beneath her son Cupid, who is flying overhead about to shoot his love arrow into the three graces, who are next to Mercury, his face uncannily similar to Lorenzo de' Medici, who himself is sassily plucking an orange. And I'll save you some head-scratching. None of these figures were ever in one myth together. And they certainly wouldn't have been both themselves and their future selves at once, either in the myth or in any of the artistic representations of these myths, as in the case with Chloris and Flora. And their interactions, both with the viewer and with each other, are equally enigmatic. The figures are either engaged with one another, like with Zephyr and Chloris, or with Mercury and his orange, or they're ignoring each other, like they're in two different paintings, like with Mercury and the Graces. But then you have Venus and Flora making eye contact with us. Like, what? Who are we? What even is happening here? And again, it makes you think. These paintings were painted during the mind-bending, paradigm-shifting ascent towards the high Italian Renaissance, the most humanistic and realistic renderings of human beings that the Western art world had ever seen. Leonardo da Vinci was dissecting cadavers to understand how lip muscles moved. These were artists who understood biology and the human body and linear perspective and three dimensions on a two-dimensional canvas like never before. So why pay so little attention to accuracy, both in the style and in the subject matter? And this is where we look not to science, but to poetry. These paintings, as Gardner told us, were based on poems, the stanzas by Agnolo Poliziano, a contemporary of Botticelli. These poems were, in their own way, the beat poetry of their time, structured around classical mythology, but through allusions and vibes. There was a medieval sense of stylized courtly romance, a lyricism that eschewed scientific accuracy. And this poetic license, so to speak, made perfect sense for its period. Think about it. If the Renaissance was really about humanity, the human scale, then being human is hardly about fitting ourselves into a perfect perspectival grid. We're messier than that. We're more poetic than that. Our feelings are irrational and sometimes best described with illusions or associations or elegiac metaphors. And maybe so can our art. And Botticelli, it has been said, was one of the greatest poets of drawing. And while for a while it was really only this little subset experimenting with Neoplatonic ideas, the mainstream came to this poetic lyricism about a half century later, in the form of mannerism. After Leonardo and the scientific precision that we associate with the High Italian Renaissance had had its moment. We looked at mannerism briefly in episode 33. It's a movement inextricable from the painter Bronzino and the depiction of Cupid tweaking Venus's nipple, again, a painting that makes zero sense. But there's another famous mannerist painting, Parmigianino's Madonna with the Long Neck from around 1535, that feels, in its way, indebted to Botticelli. It depicts the Virgin Mary holding Jesus on her lap, 
looking down at him tenderly and surrounded by angels. Except the proportions are insane. The length of her neck and body and lap are totally improbable, as is the size of the Christ child who has the head of a baby and the long and lean body of my four-year-old. A 20th century Italian scientist even proposed that the model had Marfan syndrome, which affects your muscles' connective tissue, and that's the only reason that, in the context of the Renaissance, she could look like that. But this feels plainly absurd in this context, another example of critics overreaching in order to create concrete substance. In the words of 20th century art critic Ernst Gombrich, quote, the painter wanted to be unorthodox. He wanted to show that the classical solution of perfect harmony is not the only solution conceivable. And that in, quote, Parmigianano's eagerness to make the Holy Virgin look graceful and elegant, he has given her the neck like that of a swan, end quote. In this attempt to cross rational with irrational, feeling with reality, and create something new and unexpected, Gombrich suggests that maybe we're not only looking at the rightful evolution of the Renaissance and its goal portraying human beings accurately in both body and soul, but maybe also the first truly modern painting. So let's get modern. I mean, this is the part we've all been waiting for. If we allow for Botticelli to have shaped modern art, however indirectly, then it's only right to turn our focus onto the oversized role that his painting has played in modern art, and particularly pop culture. What Botticelli's Venus has represented to the world. Alrighty, so you had to recreate the birth of Venus, Botticelli. Wow, feminine icon. And here's your best shot. She is, of course, in the words of America's Next Top Model judge Nigel Barker, a feminine icon. That platonic ideal of both her own beauty and the Renaissance itself. And throughout the 20th century, up to today, really, this mattered a lot. In the 1930s, Mussolini sent the painting around the world on a grand tour to remind everybody that Italy wasn't just a country of strength, but of civilized culture as well. Dream of Venus was the pavilion designed by Dali for the 1939 New York World's Fair and would have featured a giant Botticelli Venus with a fish head had he not been utterly shot down by the organizing committee for such a blatant act of transgression. Which is something that speaks both to how important her earthly beauty is and to maintain it, and to how fiercely even the proponents of surrealism flocked to protect her, to defend her or at least the high-minded ideal of her. Of course, this ideal speaks to the inability to see her as anything more than an idea, a beautiful thing with no inherent agency. Because as we've hammered home at this point, the flip side of being an icon or an object purely for reaching some abstract plane is that there's something inherently empty-headed about her. She is pure projection, Venus as vessel. And plenty of contemporary artists, like those critics we talked about at the top, have picked up on this emptiness and filled her in. 
In Venus after Botticelli from 2008, the Chinese artist Yin Xin questions the very idea of whether an icon can represent all of womanhood by reimagining Venus as an Asian woman with black hair and almond-shaped eyes, and thus interrogating our assumption that a feminine icon could only be Western, blue-eyed, flaxen-haired. Meanwhile, American photographer David LaChapelle imagines this icon as a porn star in his hyper-realistic, highly saturated Rebirth of Venus from 2009, which is maybe a postmodern neoplatonic vision of femininity. The idea that women are beautiful objects only suitable for the purpose of the public gaze, which is something that Lady Gaga, both in her music videos for her album Art Pop, and even in just her Dolce & Gabbana dress covered in births of Venus, seem to be attempting to identify, harness, subvert. And then there's a gentler homage in the photography of Angela Strassheim, described by the New York Times critic Michael Kimmelman as surreal and strangely loving, depicting a young girl standing contraposto in an inflatable pool, the hanging laundry rippling behind her like Zephyr's wind, set against industrial grain silos. The neoplatonic, blue-collar American adolescent. Just as iconic as Venus, and maybe just as unknowable. Like so many people of her age and socioeconomic class, she is the product of our projections. So I guess this is where my investigation has taken me. Limitless interpretations. Everyone recognizes Venus on Gaga's dress. And while it's probably for the best that People magazine isn't writing about a postmodern neoplatonic ideal when she wears it, that doesn't mean it's not present. That we're not all kind of living inside it. We're still seeing that iconic Botticelli face for everything it represents not necessarily what it means. And this is why these representations and interpretations have to be actively sought out. You have to actually look up what makes this painting interesting or what makes this painting controversial to get to the good stuff. This is the stuff that usually pops up on a painting's Wikipedia page or makes its way into art history textbooks. Most of what's interesting about the Mona Lisa is right there. But Botticelli demands this investigation. Without it, how else would I have known that it was the first Tuscan painting on canvas instead of wood, using temper thinned with diluted egg yolk, and that Botticelli painted it with actual gold to give the shimmering highlights? And all of this contributes to a painting that itself feels as diaphanous as the flowing material that it depicts. La Primavera, by contrast, was painted on wood and consequently feels a little darker, a little heavier. I also wouldn't have known that it was ostensibly the first secular painting to incorporate nudity, or at least a woman so comfortable in her nakedness, which is quite an evolution from the original bashful, modest Praxiteles sculpture. And I never would have realized how many rules it broke in its own period, when it was still just a painting, pushing the boundaries of its subject matter 
and its technical application and its zeitgeist, all in real time, before it went through the gears of the modern fame machine and landed in our laps. And more than anything, I wouldn't have known that even as Venus looks out at us, an empty, beautiful vessel, she still tells not only a richer, more authentic story of the Renaissance, but a story of our own substance. All the there there that we contribute to a larger conversation about being human beings, our passions, our projections, and our poetry. Special thanks to Debbie Bleacher and all my wilding friends and family who contributed their insights at the top. Roll call. Ariana, Matt, Mom, Zach, Lucy, Wade, and Kelly. You are all made of the diaphanous fabric of the stars. For more information about the show, including all the images, go to thelonelypalette.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter, buy merch, book virtual tours, commission episodes, Follow our socials, at Lonely Palette on Instagram is probably the best, and explore the multiple ways to support the show, be it a tip jar, a sweeping, tax-deductible, philanthropic donation, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. And if you are on the fence about supporting the show, we're piloting a new perk. It turns out that Giorgio Vasari is a messy bench who loves drama which is really only something you notice if he was read out loud to you. So that's what I'm doing. Take a listen to our bonus audio of me reading the Botticelli chapter of Vasari out loud, with voices. And if you like it, let me know, and maybe it will become a more regular thing. Send me your feedback at thelonelypalette.com or on patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of deeply felt, mind-expanding storytelling podcasts. And a recent Hub & Spoke show that I wanted to share with you is the most recent episode of Vanessa Lowe's Nocturne, The Nyctalops, where she talks with the writer and producer Andrew Leland, author of Country of the Blind, and together they create an episode rich in both sound and story. You'll be carried away. Listen at nocturnepodcast.org, hubspokeaudio.org, or wherever you get your podcasts.